morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to host Paul Farmer here today as our Grand Rounds speaker. And uh, just a couple of points. There was some information out there from the Culinary Medicine Program. As you know, the first Friday of each month, we try to do some education and also prepare food. Today, we didn't do the food preparation. That'll be back next month. But I want you to get into the idea that if you come a few minutes early, you'll learn about food competencies for both ourselves and our patients. So thank you to the culinary program that uh, was working on that. Uh, secondly, I'm going to introduce very briefly Brian Remillard, who will introduce our speaker today. The speaker has no declared conflicts of interest. Brian, of course, is an associate professor of medicine, and he is the section chief in our section of nephrology and hypertension. Brian, come tell us about today's Dartmouth guest. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, so I, we're probably all feeling a little vulnerable with this virus thing. Um, and, and I guess I was thinking last night that, you know, quarantine isn't the answer. It's, um, it's the community response to that and the fact that we know that no matter what happens, from the plumbers to the president, everybody's with us and that we'll have a great, we'll have the ability to respond to it and take care of each other. And I think I was thinking about that with the earthquake in Haiti. That was the, the most amazing thing, was the response that people had. I was just wondering, is anybody in the audience who went to Haiti during the earthquake? Yeah, so, so um, you know, that, that was an amazing time to see what response Dartmouth could mount. And, and so I think that's the common theme for today is people in Haiti are vulnerable every day, not, not just when there's a virus. So I want to start out by thanking my wife, Elaine, for all the support she's had to bring all the residents here over, over the years. That's, that's helped a great deal. My renal team, um, they've always received all the residents and taught them, and, and, and uh, also Rich Rothstein for the support from the Department of Industrial Medicine has been fantastic. Um, you know, um, we said Dartmouth stands with Haiti, and the real purpose of this today is to see if we can continue that commitment. And, and I hope this can be the relaunching of that commitment. Um, we have some guests besides Paul who I want to recognize today. Um, Loon Viode, who's the executive director of Zami La Sante in Haiti. Uh, the most remarkable person. <laughs> Let me just say a few things about Loon. Um, she won the Robert F. Kennedy uh, Human Rights Award in 2002, was Elle Magazine, or no, uh, Ms. Magazine Woman of the Year, I think 2003. But the most remarkable thing is that she's the legal guardian of 64 children in Haiti. Um, so when I text Loon and I have a problem and she says I'm helping kids with their homework, I don't text her again. <laughs> I'm going to put up here, Zami Beni is the name of where all these kids live. Half of them I think were, 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 were there after the earthquake. They're not adopted, they're her, they're her children. And it's friendsofzb.org if you want to just see an amazing thing. Um, Maxie Raymondville is here and Maxie... Maxie is the executive director of ASHUM. And Maxie has an incredible job of trying to make this all happen at, 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 at uh, ASHUM. And then Verily Verne is here, who's a resident who's worked with me, who I'm hoping will be the core of mythology going forward. And most importantly, we have the residents from ASHUM on screen. And so um, rather than 
tell you all the accolades from Paul's CV. I tried to go through his CV and try to figure out like a, a how-to for the medical students here. So I'll try this, and Paul can correct me if I'm wrong. But So the first, if I looked at Paul's work, it was almost in decades, like 80, 90, 2000. And, and um, the first principle that he embraced was something I wrote up here, which is Creole for tut moon se moon. Tut moon se moon means everybody's a human being. And while that's some, a state, you know, that's a dicton we say in French, you know, just a, a, a saying, he really implemented that. And that was the approach that Partners in Health took, Sami Lassante took for all of its patients. They treat every single life as precious. And I think that transformed all the work that happened subsequently. Um, the second thing, so, so this was, so he built this clinic in Kanj with, with, with his team, and it was so successful that they invited him to Peru. And when, and when they got to Peru, they were facing TB. And they were told that Peru had the best TB clinics in the world. They were incredibly well organized, and, and that wasn't a problem. But what they noticed was that there were individuals dying. And I think the second thing that he did, that the team did, Jim and everybody, they, they spoke truth to power. They basically said, the emperor has no clothes. These clinics aren't really, there's something wrong here. And they, they found, about, found out about multidrug-resistant TB, and, and then they uh, were told they'd be thrown out of the country, I think, if they t told the Peruvian government they, I think, snuck drugs in, treated people, and proved that it could be done. And then, so that, that was the second principle. So Tutmun Simun, truth to power, and then um, they went to the, the World Health Organization and presented their findings and were basically almost laughed off the stage and told that this, this, these results couldn't be true. And even if they were true, the drugs were too expensive and weren't affordable. No one had ever asked if the drugs were generic and could be obtained that way. And it turned out that they could be. So this set, the, the third principle is experts can be wrong. And maybe the fourth, the fourth uh, principle came during the HIV epidemic, which was people don't learn from pr principles one, two, and three. And it's a continuous struggle. And, and I think that the work is never done. So you have to employ principles one, two, and three, um, et cetera. So, the earthquake happened. Dartmouth had this incredible response, and, and there was so much devastation, but one amazing thing came out of it, which was Hobital Universitaire de Mirbele, a teaching hospital that's now ACGMA certified in Haiti. These residents are there. They're amazing residents. There were, there were just two residents here uh, two weeks ago who spent two weeks here. So you all had the opportunity to go to residence report and hear, hear a case presented by Claudie. Um, I was there in June, and I just want to I was there last June and, and rounding, and they, there were 15 residents, and uh, they, they were presenting a case to me, and, and Verily said to me, you know this guy. And they text me on WhatsApp all the time, and this was a guy who had been in a coma with a B1 of 300. And, and, and the residents, the residents took it, you know, with, with, uh, dialyzed him, sent me echoes of his kidneys, and so they said, here he is. And, and they said, oh, it's, it's also, we should know, it's the father of one of the residents. And I said, I'd like to meet her. And it turned out she was in the group that we were rounding with. And um, so I said to Verily, how's, you know, how is he doing? And his BUN was now 98. He was conscious, and he was making urine. And I could tell from the way Verily said it that he was going to survive. And that's, I'd like to also recognize Joe Turk, who's here from Fresenius for 10 years providing dialysis machines and all the supplies with no strings attached. And that guy wouldn't be alive. And so I think that's just an example, a small example on my part of what can be done with support, and there's so we have so many resources here: OBGYN, pediatrics, surgery, and I think if people are interested, we can we can really help uh, stabilize home and get it get it to a, the next level. And with that, I'll leave it to Paul. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you very much, mm -hmm. Brian. Okay, thank you. Mike will take care of the mute. Um, oh, don't mute them too much. We try to mute the residents as soon as they arrive. So. <laughs> I can't even see if they're smiling. Are you smiling? No corto whim, no baka whim. I've no money anyway. Never mind. So, uh, Brian, uh, can you can you tell tell us those three uh, principles again? Sudmun Semun. That that I learned from the Haitians. Speak truth to power. That not that that would be relevant now. <laughs> Experts can be wrong. So, and we didn't even plan this together. Uh, no, I, I'm going to. I was. I'm going to do a trip down memory lane. Uh, just going back to some. I thought maybe in the midst of uh, coronavirus, it would be instructive just to retell this story through the the lens of responding to epidemic diseases that was never the primary purpose of our work there uh, to respond to epidemics we it, it's a and you're overly generous Brian saying that uh, uh, the work we did many years ago uh, was good I mean I used to tell myself that and you know got me into Harvard Medical School if anybody wants advice on how to work on the CVs and make them improbably wonderful and ludicrously perfect, please see me, I'll tell you what not to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, it really, it really, a lot of work that gets done in this transnational space between a resource-rich American university and people facing both poverty and disease, a lot of the work kind of amateurish, right? And we know it. Uh, but amateurish doesn't mean it's it bad, and also doesn't mean it can't be improved. And that's how I see <laughs> my uh, slow education over the years and uh, and also allows me to state, uh, you know, when they say, do you have any industry ties? And I usually can say, wait, wait in industry, like making cars in Detroit or something? No. But I do have Haiti ties and this is my chance to acknowledge my deep debt to, you know, as a person, as a physician, as a teacher, uh, to Haiti. And I'll give some examples from that too. Um, Forgive me if I'm having little visual problems. I, I was looking for a, a, an image from a year prior to this, uh, 1983, and not because it has any merit except as an illustration of that trajectory, which was often just a little bit off and was always in concert with a lot of Haitian friends and colleagues with whom I still work. You've just met a couple of them. Um, I Lun doesn't like any kind of sentimentality, and doesn't even highly approve of informality, which makes you wonder how we could work together for 35 years, but we have. Um, and same with Maxi, uh, we're getting close to 35. These are uh, not only my closest co-workers, uh, but my closest friends. And that matters when you're going through a hard times. Sometimes it's an ep epidemics, uh, sometimes you know a lot of what bound us together and bound us to Dartmouth. Uh, certainly it was personal connections, Jim Kim and others, but it was really uh, the earthquake in January 10th. So this set of comments ends up at the earthquake but I'm just letting you know out of a search for empathy and kindness, I don't really like talking about the earthquake, so I don't do it that often. But it was tough to be 
back in Haiti in the 80s, too. I, I was looking for a picture of 1983. Ange was actually, as some of you can, which is where I still live, as some of you can see, was a, a squatter settlement. And you know, it's a rural area, and I didn't even know, when I graduated from college, I didn't know what a squatter settlement is. I didn't know the, anything about the history of Haiti, although I might have, I should have, I grew up in Florida. But um, the squatter settlement in this case was, do I have a consult call? Call farmer, infectious disease. Tell <laughs> me I have coronavirus here. <laughs> Sorry. I know, sensitive subject. But, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a, a place where people were misplaced by a hydroelectric dam. Right? And you can see the reservoir in the background. And, you know, from the tale, as a young American who had never been in a place like Haiti, in between college and medical school, I heard an earful from my hosts and becoming my friends, and I'm still friends with them to this all, all these years, I heard about grabbing kids under one arm and maybe a goat under the other, and then just heading uphill when the water started to rise in the valley. I found that a completely improbable tale. I mean, you're building a massive buttress dam eight kilometers away from here, you know, what would be the logical output if they ever dammed the river, which is the purpose of the dam? would be to flood the valley. But I heard the story again and again. I started learning there are lots of ways to experience something, and in this case, something that was intended as something good. And I'm going to keep going back to epidemic responses as well. That will, you know, of course we mean something good by our responses, whether it's a hydroelectric dam to irrigate a valley that has rich agricultural potential, or to the electric part of hydroelectric to generate much-needed utilities, or, you know, look uh, at cholera, HIV in passing, or to respond effectively to, to, a, to an epi epidemic that's new, that's unknown, and is, of course, frightening, right? So, obviously, I'm going to get back to the coronavirus. Anyway, all the mistakes that you could make back then, we probably made them all. The good one was, however, that uh, we were working with uh, an indomitable team of Haitians uh, who, uh, you know, they were living in their own, and working in their own country, addressing the plight of these people who had been displaced by a hydroelectric dam. And they were clamoring for certain things that uh, old Haiti hands uh, will recognize. They were clamoring for respect, for dignity, but also uh, what struck me even then, and I was 23 was uh, housing, education, job creation, and good medical care. So exactly the kind of things that I had seen Americans, uh, especially where I was growing up in rural Florida, I'd seen Americans asking for. You know, we want to have decent jobs, decent salaries, education. And when we're sick or injured, we want a safety net. That's what I heard. And that's where I kind of developed the language was from being around Haitians as they continued to clamor for this over the years. Uh, the year after that, a series of food riots started in Haiti. Um, they weren't just a, a Haitian phenomenon. They were a reflection of forces that uh, I didn't understand, uh, but they were global economic forces related to policies taken that would really weaken the hand of the rural ag agrarian producers we were working with. But again, I had no idea how to put this all together, and I slowly 
tried to master some of those that synthesis as I went in between Harvard and Haiti for all the years after that and, and, and still to this day. They finally noticed I'm doing this, by the way, but they seem unfazed by it. My boss is at Harvard. So we started with a... Um, and the we here, this, this is Samina Sante, which means Partners in Helping Creole, but that's where the, the real uh, nucleus of work began. That's where, I mean, most of my Haitian colleagues, including a couple sitting here today, uh, quite correctly regard themselves as the founders of Partners in Health because this is where the work started. Um, and now, how well did we do? Uh, well, we had a fantastic uh, construction worker uh, who happened to be a Haitian, who is a Haitian priest. So, I don't know, did you learn that in seminary? How to build walls? Um, and he would say, did you, are you learning that in medical school? But in truth, neither of us had learned it, and we built the hospital wrong. We built the clinic wrong. This was the scene of enormous traffic jams every day for years and years and years, you know? It looked okay, and once it was reforested, I, I, I had some pictures of the reforestation of this previous place, but many photos. It looks okay, but it didn't work okay. And I just want to point this out because I want to go back to a systems uh, interpretation of what might have been done differently and what we eventually did do differently. But it was an epidemic and a lot of political turmoil that actually pushed us in the right direction. So just to go back, uh, and I'd like to make it clear that any, uh, any photographs are used with patient permission. One thing that I saw in between you know, even as a medical student, I was doing a PhD, as was Jim Kim. We were doing an MD-PhD program. And the PhDs were in anthropology. So anthropology, are there any anthropologists or social scientists over here at the medical center? No, so I'm safe when I say anthropology is something of a scam. <laughs> I mean, in what other field can you get a doctoral degree, a terminal degree, just by schmoozing with people? <laughs> I mean, this was perfect for me. Right? Um, and so, but you, you do actually have to, uh, you have to write a dissertation. Um, uh, all I can say is I got it done quick, more quickly than Jim did. <laughs> but, uh, or as another friend of ours who's on the faculty in the anthropology program said, uh, no, problematizing something is not a dissertation. So we actually had to write it. And, uh, and I had proposed this absolutely, again, ludicrously, not audacious, just like deluded proposal. My proposal was that I would, I would write like a five-volume study of three different epidemics, seriously. And then I specified them, unfortunately. That was my proposal. Five volumes, no problem. Um, I did not complete that project, um, but I did, and I had to narrow it, you know, and, and I had a good... Thesis advisor. Some of you know Arthur Kleinman. He was my um, He's still around, and uh, although now I get to be his boss, which I like a lot. <laughs> um, so I was, what's going on with young women who are showing up in a rural area, sick with, uh, and it didn't take us long. Let me put it this way: it took us long, sh uh, less time to get rapid testing for HIV and it has taken the U.S. government to get rapid testing for coronavirus, but that's a sore subject, so I won't talk about it. So it didn't take us long to get rapid tests. Um, so we saw a lot of people coming in, and, and one of the questions that 
uh, at least was being encouraged to ask in medical school, and I, you know, and by and in Haiti even more intensely was, well, you know, what's wrong with them, and what can be done to help them? Nobody said to me in those years, what's wrong with them, and how can we push for disease containment? I didn't meet families saying, hey, my daughter has this new illness, HIV disease. How can you stop it? from spreading to other people. What they said was, my daughter's sick, she needs care. And they were hearing all kinds of contrary, uh, all kinds of reasons why it's, nothing could be done. And, and just think about Ebola. Well, it's a new disease, we don't know what it is. There's no treatment for it. We don't have rapid diagnostics. Even if we did have treatment for it, there's no healthcare infrastructure here. There's no care delivery. Uh, you know, but the most discouraging thing about being trained in the 80s as a, as a physician or a nurse was, you know, there's this, this is the number one cause of mortality among young American women and young American men, right? And it seemed like the response was going too slow back then. And then in a place like Haiti, you started having traffic jams of sick people and their families, of course, taking them there to a place, this is sometime in the 80s and without knowing why they were sick or what could be done and this this all over this idea that nothing could be done which is always false thank God in medicine you know and there are plenty of people in this country who are working in teaching hospitals around the country working at the NIH working in industry laboratories trying to figure out what could be done and how to do it more quickly now we didn't have the luxury of saying there's nothing that could be done. We knew it was wrong, uh, but we didn't have the luxury. What were we going to do? Just shut down the clinical facilities? Because if you open the clinical facilities anywhere, people would show up sick with this disease because they didn't just have this disease. This was, you know, I was an ID fellow in these years, and I, Peter Wright would, would, uh, has, has seen and generated a lot of work like this, but uh, this was in a rural part of Haiti um, with limited lab capacity. Uh, you saw some of the infrastructure. It, it got better after that, of course, but it was still a very limited lab. We didn't have a BSL-3 lab uh, we, you know, we to work with some of the pathogens we later would, but we found out something really, really critical here, and that is the majority of patients who would show up to the clinic or hospital had the majority had one opportunistic disease, and that was tuberculosis. It could have been, it was often disseminated tuberculosis, it was often pulmonary tuberculosis, but they had tuberculosis, or we thought they did. You know, this is not an easy diagnosis to make. But you go right through this list of how people presented, and each of these presentations is an eminently treatable, curable, or manageable disease. So not only did these families, patients and families, not like it when we said, oh, there's nothing that can be done, there's no treatment. It was false. So if you could deliver effective care for tuberculosis, that's what was killing the majority of people living with HIV in Haiti. And it wasn't just in central Haiti. It was all over. Now, that also proved to be true in many American cities, in cities across the Americas, Latin America, and it really proved to be true in the continent where there was a massive epidemic brewing 
as debates about widespread testing occurred. And again, I'm going to go back to you know what, what might be happening in the next month or so, next couple of weeks on, on the same continent. Uh, there's no reason to believe just because you don't have news of a new ailment or uh, an ailment that isn't readily diagnosed because it's not got pathognomonic signs, there's no reason to believe if you're not testing that you're seeing the burden of disease. And so it proved uh, in Africa. Now, that's a different story, and there are plenty of epidemiologists and modelers around who can help us with that, but our experience with epidemic after epidemic is these same sorts of things happen. Fear, contagion, travel bans, anxiety, punitive legislation, no thought to what's going to happen for the caregivers, the family members, the aunts, the moms, people who are taking leave off, you know, not, and then suddenly don't have enough to live off there if they lose their housing. This story is, is every time, right? And the question is, are we going to entrap ourselves into doing something better or not? And how do we do that? Thank you for appreciating the way. It took me a year to figure out how to say that. How are we going to entrap ourselves into decency? Well, the, the entrapment part was easy here. Do we have a tuberculosis? Do we have therapy or not? Do we have diagnostics and therapy for tuberculosis? And if so, do we have a mechanism for delivering it? Well, we did have a mechanism for delivering it. We also want to know why so many young women, right? So this was a nerd's happy moment for a nerd because I was actually studying this. Among my seven-volume proposed studies was one little sub-chapter that I actually did figure out, uh, well, not figure out by myself, I'm just saying figure out enough so that I could get a PhD out of it, which was largely, remember, PhD largely conferred just by schmoozing with people, and I'm an expert at schmoozing, especially with my Haitian colleagues. But this is an image from the famous Broad Street pump. This is from Jon Snow's original studies of cholera. They knew that cholera, as they called it for a millennium, surely. They knew the cholera was killing a lot of people in London, but why? Because this was just a little bit before the germ theory took off elsewhere in Europe and in the United States. And this is a, I should have put the picture of the Broad Street pump instead. But my sister, who was a graphic artist at the time and now is an art teacher, I said, can you help me make a really cool graphic? All you young people who would turn turn out memes by the, by, the, the, by, the sh by the RN shift. I thought this was cool anyway. So I, we found I'm interviewing, all you had to do was sit, if you're taking care of these patients, again, treating their tuberculosis, treating their other opportunistic infections, they would get better, right? So they come in more abundant with TB, they'd also have HIV. You could figure out their CD4 count soon enough. But then they started getting better, as one does when you have tuberculosis and good combination therapy for it, and a community health worker, maybe a little food and some TLC, you get better. So I started talking more and more, and of course, instead of saying, I'm short of breath, you know, can you please save my children, or saying, I'd really like a job, right? These are the patients. And a lot of them did join our staff. Some became women's health agents, some worked in a family planning clinic, some became community health workers, some went to nursing school, right? Some started small businesses, but many of them worked with us. And as the dust settled in the 80s as the new therapies were being developed, and they began, by the way, 
in the 80s, using uh, antiretroviral therapies in the 90s. No, we had AZT in 86. And uh, it was clear that it would prevent transmission of mother to children in most cases by 88. So there was a lot to be done just in caregiving. And we also learned something obvious, that when you integrate prevention and care, right, or in other words that will sound more familiar today, when you integrate disease containment with care, that's when trust starts being built and people show up. So if there, are, if there is a hypothesis here today, it's you integrate prevention with good services, you increase trust. And how do we know that? Because these empty clinics and hospitals across Haiti, we started being able to fill, and these were public hospitals, we started being able to fill them up just by saying, hey, in addition to HIV testing, or what is soon called voluntary counseling and testing, we also know how to take care of you. So that's one thing, if I'm on the way here yesterday between Boston and Hanover, talking to a journalist, I'm saying, you know, Americans should be frightened of the, what looks like a fairly high fraction of coronavirus patients who require intensive care. We should be, but we also got you. We also have a safety net if we can make it, if we can tailor it to what we're gonna need, we have a way just because there are no non-specific therapies for coronavirus, that just, there are no specific therapies for coronavirus. Well, fortunately, we have non-specific therapies, you know? And it was, how do you think all those folks survived the 80s and early 90s, people living with HIV? Non-specific therapies, right? You lose a lot of fluids. Well, why don't we replace the fluids? You're short of breath because you have PCP pneumonia. Well, why don't we treat the PCP pneumonia and give you oxygen, right? You have a bed sore, you know, and because of poor nutrition, untended systemic disease. Uh, well, why don't we feed you well and work with the nursing staff so that you don't have a bed sore? And on and on it goes. Again, these are the things that we see. Non-specific therapies should not be considered substandard therapies as we develop new ones. And I think that holds for vaccines as well. Like we don't have a vaccine yet, so we're trying social distancing. We're coming back to coronavirus, of course. And it was, even with a sexually transmitted pathogen, slow moving, the chief opportunistic infection is TB, these lessons were seen uh, throughout those years and beyond. And they were seen with cholera, Ebola, Zika, and again, it makes me think it's a pattern about disease rather than just the virus itself. Now, meanwhile, something great happened. I happened to be, and I, I used this slide, these next couple of slides before, many years ago at Dartmouth, but anybody who graduated, uh, went to medical school or nursing school in the 80s remembers this very well and very personally, right? Or other caregivers, but when I say clinicians, I usually mean nurses and physicians. Um, respiratory techs, lab folks who venture out into the wards, you name it, right? The, the, the ranking problem of our time among, if you were training in an American city, was HIV disease leading cause of death, as I said, for young women and young men. But something amazing happened. I happened to be finishing my, uh, my infectious disease fellowship, still moving between Harvard and Haiti, but now largely between the Brigham the Beth Israel Deaconess uh, and Haiti. Um, 
And let me just say that when you saw that precipitous decline in case fatality rate, this is age-adjusted mortality, when you saw that, you experienced that as a provider, a nurse, a physician, it was palpable, rapid, and uplifting. So for years, we've been telling patients, you know, hey, there's stuff on the way, these combinations really seem to be effective. And then in one year, 95, 96, really, uh, at least in Boston and in my limited experience in other American cities, people went home and stopped dying. So you're saying, hey, we're begging you, take these medications, uh, get better, stop dying, go home, we'll see you in outpatient clinic. Now, meanwhile, on the other end of the Harvard-Haiti divide, we weren't begging our patients to take those medications. They were begging us to get them for them. Now, so if you, if you skip ahead and think about a patient with renal failure and a crush injury, uh, the, idea that, <laughs> the idea that patients and moms and dads who are bringing their kids with acute renal injury or chronic renal insufficiency, that they're bringing them you know, to a place like Mirabale and more on Mirabale in a second so that we can just give them a diagnosis. Um, I mean, I've never seen that in my, in, in my practice here in, in New England, in Haiti, in Rwanda, anywhere. People are looking pretty much for the same thing, and that is care, right? This all was sped up very quickly in, in a way not like, like a positive response to a, a disaster, a social disaster. Right, and uh, and it was a good feeling. So the question then became, okay, now it's 1995 in the United States of America. We have a transnational political economy. We have new therapies develop inside that transnational political economy that not too long ago linked New England to Haiti, right, or Florida to Haiti, where I grew up. How do we get the medications there? Now, there were lots of objections. They were already mentioned. I don't want to, this is not a, if there's a heroic part of the story, it's really the AIDS activists, largely from North America, joining forces with the AIDS activists in, in uh, you know, I'm thinking of Southern Africa, but all over the world, to demand a meaningful response with antiretroviral therapy. In other words, there were lots of unreasonable responses suggested, a different standard of care. And the thing that makes me chuckle about this graphic, is this comes from the World Health Organization, their own graphic. Uh, so we got Africa and then the Western world, although when I think of the Western world, I think of Western Massachusetts or West Virginia, maybe California. Anyway, I know what they meant. Um, the post-colonial nations that now get to be called Western democracies, which by the way, that's a huge scam too. How did they suddenly just be, get, get to be Western democracies? Okay, don't get me going. Lynn says, Lynn says, stick with your knitting. Stick with the epidemics. So, ART is not, you know, art therapy in the sense of, you know, going to the ballet with, you know, nice free tickets. Uh, it's antiretroviral therapy. That's the only treatment we have for advanced, you know, HIV disease. Like, do we have treatments for chronic renal insufficiency? Yeah, we have some. We have dialysis. We have transplant. And there's some medical management. But once you get to a certain point, it really becomes a small number of therapies. So in this case, ART. Now, here's what happened, which need not have happened. Uh, by the way, I, this is something I've 
covered a lot of times, but I, I have to say, as I was watching this, these are not simulations. You know, when you read about coronavirus modeling efforts, et cetera, this is just data, right? So we would say, this was in 2002, and it's all of them, when you look at the date, there's a reason that we're marshalling the data at certain times. So this was to point out to those contemplating uh, launching uh, the largest American intervention, healthcare intervention, involving therapy in history, and probably human history, which was called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. But this is before that term was coined. One of the, some of the questions we got was, well, we're told this disease is untreatable. And you want to, and I wanted to say, oh yeah, who told you that to these political people? We're told that the disease is untreatable. I wanted to say, oh yeah, who told you that? But I knew who it was. It's the development economists and public health experts whose goal is to make sure everything is sustainable, cost-effective. And the way these terms are used, like cost-effective, I'm thinking, this is a very intimidating term. I mean, if something's not cost-effective, I don't think you're rooting for it, right? This is completely cost-ineffective. Let's do it. So usually when someone says something's not cost-effective, they want you to say, so therefore a stupid idea, right? But not only could I not really believe that was true, I was, I was saying, wait, cost and price are not, are, they're two different things, right? But it costs us we were getting the same three medications for a, through a mix of concessional prices, and uh, we were buying them, right? This is cost per patient per year. This was average wholesale without any frills. It was a lot more than this, usually, with diagnostics and certainly with care. This is just a small fraction of that, and this is the International Dispensary Association, which is the world's largest not-for-profit procurer and distributor of generic medications. So it's based in in Amsterdam. Uh, they build better dams there too, I'm told. But um, that that was years ago. This is 2002. Now it costs about fifty dollars per patient per person. My point here is that whatever you plug into your equation of cost-effectiveness or sustainability or whatever, uh, you better know the difference between price and cost, I would say. Because if, 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 it's, if it's the cost, then you need to work with the manufacturers, including big pharma, generic manufacturers. Is it possible to pull together a coalition where the primary idea is to find high-quality, low-cost medications for people who are not even included in the market as it's currently constituted? And the answer to that was yes, it was possible. And that's another story uh, uh, on the manufacturing side. You know, groups like the Clinton Foundation did a fantastic job and still are. And we're trying to expand that to other, like new vaccines, new therapeutics like HCV, uh, oral curative therapy when that came along. So the idea, the idea is learn from this response are relevant, just like the other social responses are relevant to new epidemics like Corona. Now, this has been the hardest of the messages, I think, to get through about epidemics and disasters. And this, to our peril, uh, at the time of the earthquake 10 years ago, is, and this, I believe, is Dr. Maxey. I wanted to get a picture of him with his big old fro and a little soul patch. Now he's, this guy here, 
who was at the time in this photograph probably the director of women's health. Um, he's an obstetrician gynecologist. Um, but we knew we need hospitals for people who are seriously ill or injured. I, I mean, I know one could hypothesize that people living in extreme poverty are a different species, but technically, anybody gets injured or critically ill, maybe they do need a hospital. Now, do we need to send some, an elderly person who's living in a rural part of New Hampshire or Haiti uh, and needs uh, a checkup or to get her asthma meds, you know, do we need to send them into a hospital? Of course not. Plus, you have ice here. Bad road conditions. <laughs> Most of that stuff should be done wherever they're living, right? Wherever we're living and working. Or, that is to say, in home, at home, community-based, right? Or it should be happening in a health center. But the weird thing about, you know, the public health Luddites is that some of them would say, we, we don't need hospitals. You know, and it took me a long time to say, and this is before the acute renal cases and, and trauma cases we saw in the earthquake, it took me a long time before I would say, well, you know, I was hit by a car when I was in medical school. Like, you know when your mom says, look both ways before you cross the street? Well, I didn't do that on the corner of Fresh Pond Parkway and Huron Avenue in Cambridge, and the cars always win. Right? But I didn't expect the emergency medical technicians to come over and lean over me as I'm blocking traffic and say, you should look both ways before you cross the street. <laughs> but that's what we say to poor people. You should have used family planning. You should have done this. You should have done that. People are going to get sick and injured. And you have to have a health care system, preferably a public health care system because it's a public safety net. You've got to have a safety net if you want to respond to either disasters, well, to disasters, whether they're epidemics or, as took case uh, in Haiti, uh, something that at least we didn't expect, which was the earthquake. Now, let me just say what had happened by the time of the earthquake 10 years ago. We had used this vertical money, and Peter will know what I'm talking about, many of you will. This is AIDS-related money, which went into a cash-starved public sector system. In this case, these are all public hospitals from the Dominican border over to the coast on the west. And the people who really made this happen are sitting in this room, Loon and Maxie among them, uh, was can we go into these public uh, hospitals and clinics, rebuild them, staff them, open them with enough medication so that people would actually seek care there for whatever ails them or however they got injured, and can we spread that across the country? And the answer to that was also yes. And one of the reasons that Loon won the Robert F. Kennedy Award by advancing this as a basic right, the right to you know, health care, yes, but also freedom from insecurity and want. So it was one of several ways we justified our work, but, uh, and sometimes there were other ways. Like it makes no, like when we go to Rwanda and say to the heads of the government there, you know what? really need to invest in healthcare and education and gender equity because that's what's going to grow the economy. Like Jim Kim can make those arguments extremely readily and did for years. And he taught me how to do that too. But healthcare is a human right. We don't want to, we don't want to get rid of that. Now, this is the part I don't like talking about. This is the National Nursing School. And as you can imagine, very 
very few of the third year students or their teachers uh, survived this. So it was a, it was a, you know, we, everybody here, most people here will have their stories. It is how we met Brian um, and got to feel the real power of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock connection was this horrible event. Um, you know, you, when you see Brian wandering around on a tarmac with a bunch of really expensive looking machinery, you feel sorry for him, you know? <laughs> Thank you for giving him the stuff. But we needed to like, I felt like we needed to put a little, like my, my mother had so many children by the time she was 28 that she tied us up with little strings. And so like, Let's tie up Brian and bring him back here. It'll be okay. Elaine, we did take good care of him. So this is, obviously I'm making jokes because I hate talking about this. I'm sure this, you don't need a psych degree to figure that out. But this was the circumstance for the better part of a year. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I, I don't know that Port-au-Prince would compare, you know, Jane has written a lot about this. I don't know that Port-au-Prince would compare that badly to New Orleans after Katrina. I mean, the rubble removal without much, no Army Corps of Engineers, but it's amazing to me how much the Haitian people, for how many people were saved, how they saved each other in the middle of terrible times, but also some of the stuff that got done just by sheer force of will and you know hand labor was amazing. But you still had millions of displaced people and uh, and this is when cholera hit, I'll just say that. Now, cholera, you would look at this and you'd say, well, this is where the epicenter must have been, right? It must have been really bad in the city. Actually, it was worse in the rural areas because here there was more clean water. They were drinking out of plastic bottles. So this was seven months after the, the big quake. Um, and the, it was really bad in the rural areas. And it, there wasn't a question as, you know, there was, I was in Rwanda this day. I say this day because Louise Ivers, who many of you know is a infectious disease doctor at, at the Mass General, name it not. Um, that was a little internal Brigham and women's joke, but hey. Uh, this, this was not, a, this was not a, you know, you didn't say, gee, I wonder what this could be. Right? And we'll go back to coronavirus. Coronavirus is not a very distinctive set of symptoms, right? It's, it's not, you know, you, may, you're, you have a fever, you're fatigued, you have some chest pain, shortness of breath, some diarrhea. Could be a million things, right? I'm still trying to figure out how it was identified as quickly as it was. Cholera is quite distinctive, right? Explosive watery diarrhea, the likes of which you've never seen. Not everybody has this, right? But they knew what it was. And if we didn't, then all you had to do was go to a place like San Marcos. And this happened in the course of just a couple of days. And again, I was in Rwanda, it took me a while to get back. It was just rapid collapse of the system that my colleagues have been trying to stand up for years, you know. And it, but the good news was rapid collapse, but it also, they put it back together. Within days, you know, there was a, um, a response drawing on the emergency response that we had done after the earthquake. Now you'd think the previous 20 years we were drawing on something, and we were. We were drawing on years of working with the public sector as an NGO and as a university, and that's what Dartmouth has, has done as well. Dartmouth has stuck with a smallish group of people um, working on a pretty focused matter, 
um, over years and never neglecting the training aspect. So that's what American academic medicine does, and I'm sure it's internationally the case as well. We take care of patients, we try to learn new things, and we train others, and we learn ourselves. And that has been the heart of this awesome um, connection with University Hospital. Um, you know, if I, if, I, if I can close with just one kind of creepy experience. Uh, after the earthquake, uh, Partners in Health found itself uh, in receipt of a large number of unsolicited donations. That hadn't really happened before. And so we, our Haitian colleagues particularly, had to decide, well, what are we going to do with this money? And I was on the subgroup who said, well, they just lost their academic medical centers. So Tutmun Semun isn't going to work very well if you can't train nurses and physicians and administrators and you know, run a hospital or a safety net in general. So there was a group of us who said we should build an academic medical center. I, and I have to say, I didn't really have doubts. I mean, there were, there were discouraging moments, right? But most of them were like this. So then we would gather in a meeting where there would be a lot of non-Haitians, and this is the, you know, in the fairly immediate aftermath of the, of the earthquake. And Moon would say, ah, you know, or Maxie would say, hey, you go, it's your fellow white people. He really would say stuff like that. I'm like, oh, thank you, Dr. Maxie. See if I'm ever best man in your wedding again. Um, and then Moon, who doesn't like to talk in general, she's all action. So they would send me off to be the blanc, which is also the word for foreigner at these meetings. And at one of them, I said, well, we're, uh, uh, for the interim Haiti Recovery Commission, we're advancing a, a modern teaching hospital in central Haiti out of the earthquake zone, right? Now, remember, I'm, I don't have to ask them for the money, right? What am I asking for? I'm not even sure, like symbolic capital, as an anthropologist might say. Right? We had the money or had enough to get going. And... Uh, Someone, I mean, a lot of people were scoffing. These are the experts in disaster response. Scoffing. Which, you know, I wouldn't scoff. Uh, in, I wouldn't even do it to the blonde present, me, because I had been working there 20-something years. I thought I might deserve a little less than scoffing. And one uh, very prominent and influential uh, member of this community of disaster relief and development, by the way, I'm affiliated with the UN system. I won't mention um, gender or nationality, but she's French. Um, so, not Canadian French. I so. uh, got up and said, now is not the time, I could even do the accent, but I won't. Now is not the time for Haiti to be thinking about building academic medical centers. Now that's, that's not meant to invite a discussion, right? She didn't, I mean, he or she wasn't saying, oh, please, stand up and have a rejoinder, right? I didn't need to say anything, right? There was no yield on it. Of course, my blood pressure was 220 over 120, so it may, I thought, have the hydraulic theory of blood pressure. I, I needed to say something, so I said, uh, well, if now is not the time for Haiti to rebuild an academic medical uh, center, it's hard to imagine there ever will be one, right? And so I didn't. 
It would have been good if I had dramatically stalked off, but I don't do stuff like that. So this is actually not just a drawing, right? This, although this was a drawing, this became uh, the hospital, and this is my last slide, and Brian already mentioned. Um, so 10 years later, cut to a few January, a few weeks ago. It's 10 years after the earthquake. I didn't really know if, I mean, I knew I wanted to go back for the day, and I'd just been there seeing patients, <coughs> Maxie and Loon. Um, this is one of the residents that had fallen sick with a really dreadful malignancy and went into complete really renal failure. You know the case very well. So I had been, even though I'm an infectious disease doctor, I had been taking an interest in the case and the, you know, what the chemo uh, was planned and seeing his miraculous recovery from being dialyzed at that point. He was like dialyzed for a couple weeks, I think. This is a 34-year-old uh, pediatrics pediatrician who just finished with his residency. Anyway, so I didn't know if I... I knew I wanted to be there, but I said to Loon, please don't make me go to Port-au-Prince, you know, where I spent a year after the earthquake. So Loon said, we understand, Paul. And then she went through my assistant and said, can Paul come to Port-au-Prince on Saturday? <laughs> Familiarity breeds contempt, I tell you. But, uh, you know, I, I eventually did all the things Loon wanted me to do while thinking that I was doing the things I wanted to do. But uh, there was Maxie and two other physicians who had busy duties running the department, teaching. And I said, what are you guys doing here at the airport? And they said, we have good news for you. And I said, well... Good or not, it has to wait on another meeting. They were amused by that. And uh, I, I needed some good news that day. It's the day before the 10th anniversary proper. We were doing you know, something to market at this hospital. But they said we got our accreditation. Now, this would make no sense outside of an auditorium like this. You know? <laughs> Nobody would know what that means you know, outside of nursing and medicine or if you, you, know, if you don't have to have accreditation. Let me tell you, Harvard is so jealous of other institutions that it, sometimes people, I'm not going to name names, cheer when other institutions briefly lose their accreditation. I'm kidding. I never actually saw that. <laughs> but it was Johns Hopkins later. Um, so, but if you're in our field, right, you think, are you kidding? So I just said, on that, it was Saturday afternoon, and I, I just said, has this ever happened before in Haitian history where you have the ACGME? You know, how would this have happened without some of the tools that you gave us and that you showed us how to deploy? And the residents, I mean, come on. Those residents can, can do anything. You know, you'll, some of you know them. They're listening. I don't want them to get... I don't want them to get big heads. But uh, this was a special day. And this is how I'd like to close... I hope we have a chance to talk a couple minutes about coronavirus. I'd be glad to, but I, I'm hanging on to this story and what, um, what we've been able to do between American academic medicine and uh, renaissance Haitian uh, um, academic medicine. And I, am, I can tell you that the standout program against all odds has been the training of Haiti's first set of nephrologists renal nurses, administrators, people who know how to use dialysate and dialysis machines, and also who are bold enough to think 
is this really the only thing we can do, or can we offer sometime in the near future um, transplantation to young people who are desperately in need of it? So let me stop there and thank you for having me, and I hope we have time for a couple questions. less than $40 a square foot. But don't forget, unlike Santa Rock right now, we had enormous help from the building trades, you know, the, the, um, the labor unions, uh, carpenters, plumbers. We had Jim Ansara, who a Boston construction fellow who knew a lot of the... So we had, and my, we had a lot of volunteers who came down to, to Haiti right after the, you know, after the earthquake who many of them had never traveled before, didn't have a passport, but this became a teaching hospital as it was going up, you know, so those advantages you, you might not get. If it is a quarter of this size and costs $4 million, it's a bargain because that is about 250,000 um, square feet, that, that, that building, and there's a BSL-3 lab there now too. Wow. So, but that's for everybody. That's to share with you and everybody else. So, how, uh, I know the roads are not good, but how far is Carrefour from? The biggest problem to get from Carrefour, Carrefour, Carrefour here, Carrefour, is that traffic. The road's all paved now, and it doesn't take me long to get from the airport out to the hospital, but I don't have to go through Port-au-Prince. It's on the north side. You know, in that traffic, yeah, it's, it's not about unpaved roads as it used to be. It's really about the, the traffic. But um, we already work with St. Rock quite a bit. And, oh yeah, and uh, um, we're very committed to the success of the endeavor. And we've, um, we're trying to, we've been taking patients back and forth, excuse me, for, for years. My, my good friend is the CEO of the yeah. St. Rock Haiti Foundation. She actually just came back. I texted her. She actually just came back from Haiti. Well, give her my regards. We're big fans. Okay. Same question, Carter. Now, you just used the word success. Did I? One just reads the New York Times and, and reads the articles about Haiti. Success doesn't appear very often no. in those reports. How is a listener here to integrate the talk you just gave with what we read in the newspapers, yeah. specifically the New York Times? Well, I am, I, I'm glad you called me out on that because I'm, I'm willing to say... The story I'm telling is correct. The story they're telling is sometimes correct. Because if you would miss 
And I did talk to some terrific, there are a couple of ter uh, really Haiti-focused um, New York Times reporters who I know have been in uh, discussions with, you know, again, this is not my business, but with their editors, because there are a lot of us have been complaining of the tone of the coverage for years we've been complaining about. It. I wrote a whole book about it. No one read it, but it's a grumpy book. It's a grumpy book. I'm not a grumpy person, and I hope I don't. I hope I don't run into that New York Times reporter. But um, you know, there I, I've learned things, some things over the years, and one is that there are always people inside those complex institutions who would like to cover more positive stories. If you look at the overall national trends, and by any standard criterion infant mortality, juvenile mortality, case fatality rates from AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, or even maternal mortality. What you see is steady improvement in the health conditions of Haiti over the last 35 years since the fall of the dictatorship. Now, how that squares, like, a lot of, even my trainees, you know, even our trainees, residents, stare with disbelief, some of them, when we say that. Right? Because that's not their social experience. And I get that as a physician anthropologist who's been working there for 40 years. People feel bad when there are kidnappings, when, a, uh, when uh, an election doesn't yield what, it, what people hope for. And this, is, this has been a chronic problem, this social expectation of more progress than occurs. But it's important to know the baseline data. Haiti has been fairly successful at implementing and bringing almost to national scale a number of important health interventions. I know the time is getting late, now, but there's a lot of uh, opportunity to come down and talk with Paul. I want to just say one more thing, that we learn lessons as we watch crises happen throughout the world. We have not a crisis anywhere near what you have reflected on that, we, uh, that we've learned from today. We're going through our own issue locally because Dartmouth is in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. I want to say that there are moments of heroism that happen from everyone's behavior. There's professionalism and heroism at every moment. And I think that we see what's happening in our local media, in our social networks, in confusion about what's happening and what's the truth of what's happened to healthcare workers here in the hospital. I just ask you all to do self-reflection, to behave professionally, to think about how we can be heroes in our own ways, help with our own local crisis. So I just wanted to end it because we are in the midst of our own coronavirus outbreak. There's 100,000 cases in the world, but we didn't realize we would be so close to it so soon in the Upper Valley. But I thank you for your thoughtfulness and how you respond here to our own issues that we're facing. With that said, we are delighted that Paul's going to be spending the morning with us in various venues. Will you tell us again about what's going to happen right here, Brian? Among uh, one of the uh, residents is going to present a case from home. So we, there's going to be a bunch of residents who are going to show up. We're going to present a case, challenge your. I'm really shaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best. But, so anyway, they're going to present a case, and it's just a case discussion. And I think um, if all the technology fails, any magic tricks? Or? Yeah. No, I have a. I'm from Florida. I'm, our state sport is pole dancing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so we can stick around.